0: Good evening everyone. Thank you Vic. Does anyone know who, uh, who this is? Sorry? Pete Seeger, Sam, very good. American folk singer who, uh, who died at the end of January this year after a short illness at the age of 94. President Obama was one of the, the first to pay tribute to him And this is what he said. Once called America's tuning fork, Pete Seeger believed deeply in the power of song. But more importantly, he believed in the power of community. To stand up for what's right, speak out against what's wrong, and move this country closer to the America he knew we could be. It's quite a tribute. And uh, as I read it, I must admit, I I thought you could take any one of those comments and and kind of reflect on their relevance uh, to us as Christians. But it's this idea of the power of song that that grabbed my attention, particularly this week as I was preparing for tonight, because as part of our text for this evening, uh, we're going to read and engage with the lyrics of a very powerful song. We don't know the tune of this song, but you can be sure that there was a tune given its composer and also the way it's actually introduced to us. But just back to to Pete Seeger for a minute. In 2007, a film about his life uh, was released and it was entitled The Power of Song, which amongst uh, amongst other things was described, and this, this was how this film was described, as a moving tribute to the power of music and song to inspire to motivate, and to comfort us. And music and song does do that, or it has the potential to do that. Even tonight, as we have kind of listened and sung, we we recognize that what we have been hearing and what we've been doing has the ability. It has the ability to deeply affect us. And and music does that for, for many, many people. It inspires it encourages. It stirs us. Such is the power of song. I thought I'd get a little bit of congregational participation because as you, as you read through Scripture, you come across many, many songs. Not just in the Psalms or the Psalter, which is obviously crammed full of songs, but throughout the Bible, you discover that sort of pivotal moments are marked by song so get your thinking hats on for a moment can anybody tell me or think of a song in the bible not not from the psalms now not allowed to go there but a song that was sung no matter how long or how short give me some song of miriam after moses after the children of israel came through the red sea moses led the or miriam led the israelites in song brilliant yep another one mary's song yep uh, sometimes known as the magnificat mary's song anyone else deborah's song. sorry deborah's song thank you john deborah's song yeah Elizabeth. Elizabeth's song yep cousin of mary and also her husband zachariah sang a song around the birth of jesus any other songs Two more around the birth of Jesus. One featured a whole choir. The angel song, glory to God in the highest. Who else sang just after Jesus' birth? Sorry? Someone? Held, Held a baby in his arms and sang his heart out. Simeon, yeah. What about come on a little bit further into the New Testament, okay? Paul and Silas were in jail. What does it say they were doing whenever the ground shook, doors flew open, and chains fell off? What were they doing? Singing hymns. There are others. Anybody else got any more? There's also Moses' song as he's just about to enter the promised land 43 verses, Deuteronomy 32. It's a long song, but it's there. The power of song. And this evening, as we, as we turn to 2 Samuel chapter 1, it's page 304. And we're going to pick up from where we left off a couple of weeks ago. And another key moment in Israel's history is about to be marked by a song. It's not an upbeat song. It's not a song of celebration or rejoicing. But it's a mournful lament in response to the death of Saul. And there is a real place for songs of lament. We've kind of lost that. I know I've said this before, but but in terms of church world, I don't think we do this well. We we don't sing too many songs of lament. And we kind of need to recover songs of lament. But we're about to listen to one this evening. The power of song. Thank God for the gift of music and singing. But before we, we kind of listen to this particular song at the end of 2 Samuel 1, let, let's read the first, almost half of the chapter as we reconnect with the next episode in, in David's story as part of our Walking the Walk series. So would you like to please stand with me for the public reading of God's word? 2 Samuel chapter 1, and it's page 304. After the death of Saul, David returned from defeating the Amalekites And he stayed in Ziklag two days. On the third day, a man arrived from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and with dust on his head. When he came to David, he fell to the ground to pay honor to him. Where have you come from? David asked him. He answered, I have escaped from the Israelite camp. What happened? David asked. Tell me, he said. The men fled from the battle, many of them fell and died, and Saul and his son Jonathan are dead. Then David said to the young man who brought him this report, how do you know that Saul and his son Jonathan are dead? I happened to be on Mount Gilboa, the young man said, and there was Saul leaning on his spear with the chariots and riders almost upon him. When he turned around and saw me, he called out to me and said, what can I do? He asked me, who are you? And Amalekite, I answered. Then Saul said to me, stand over me and kill me. I am in the throes of death, but I'm still alive. So I stood over him and killed him because I knew that after he had fallen, he could not survive. And I took the crown that was on his head and the band on his arm, and I've brought them here to my Lord. Then David and all the men with him took hold of their clothes and tore them. They mourned and wept and fasted till evening for Saul and his son Jonathan and for the army of the Lord and the house of Israel, because they had fallen by the sword. David said to the young man who brought him the report, Where are you from? I am the son of an alien and a Malachite, he answered. David asked him, Why were you not afraid to lift your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? Then David called one of his men and said, go, strike him down. So he struck him down and he died. For David had said to him, your blood be on your own head. Your own mouth testified against you when you said, I killed the Lord's anointed. Grab a seat. Two weeks ago, I don't know how many of you were here, but two weeks ago we read the last chapter of First Samuel. And in that chapter, we read an account of Saul's tragic death. And there it says that Saul actually asked his armor-bearer to kill him. But his armor-bearer wouldn't do it. Couldn't do it. And so according to 1 Samuel 31, verse 4, it says Saul took his own sword and fell on it. So in 1 Samuel chapter 31, we're told that Saul took his own life. Here, in 2 Samuel chapter 1, we read an alternative version of events. We read that an Amalekite killed him. It was an Amalekite who put him out of his misery. So, here's my question. Which version is right? Answer? Nobody knows. Or nobody seems to know for definite. Different people have different ideas, but it's actually left off up to us to decide. In some ways you could argue it doesn't really matter because at the end of the day, the key issue here is that Saul's dead. Although if 1 Samuel 31 is the true record, then what does it mean for this Amalekite? What was he doing if 1 Samuel 31 was true? Lying. And for most Bible commentators, as they look at this, and as you read certainly the way David sort of speaks to him here, it seems to imply and most Bible commentators, not all, but most believe that that was the case. This was an Amalekite who took an opportunity to lie in order to push himself forward. And if nothing else, what 2 Samuel 1 goes to prove is that lies and deceit and manipulation are never clever. They're always dangerous and they'll usually catch up with you with grave consequences. If 1 Samuel 31 is a true record, then that's proof. If on the other hand, his version of events are true, then what you discover is he made a huge mistake in deciding to kill the Lord's anointed because that poor choice ended up Costing him his life. So let's let's take a little closer look at this. Walk our way through the story. If you have God's word open, it'll be really handy as we as we do this. David, it says, has returned to Ziglag. You'll remember that David had been given Ziglag by a Philistine king. David had kind of like sought refuge amongst the Philistines for a period of time, and that Philistine king had given him Ziglag. But one day, the Amalekites came in while David was away and torched the place and carried everybody off. All all the wives, all the kids, all the possessions. And then we discovered that David went off in search of his, his two wives and all his men's wives and all their kids and found them, killed the Amalekites. I think there were 400 escaped on camels, killed all the Amalekites, retook their wives and kids and came back to Ziklag. So that's where David has been. And while David was away recovering his wives and kids and possessions, Saul has been fighting the Philistines. David is only back, it says, three days whenever a bedraggled-looking individual staggers into Ziklag, clothes torn, Head, face covered in ash is what it says. And when David asks him, where, where have you been? What have you been up to? This bedraggled individual says, listen, I, I have escaped from the Israelite camp. And David is, is naturally intrigued because he wants to know, well, if you've escaped from the Israelite camp, what happened? What happened in that great battle? That battle, that you, again, if you were part of the series, that battle that I wanted to be part of, but I wasn't allowed to be part of. I was sent back to Zeglag. So David says, well, so what happened? And the news isn't good. This guy says, listen, many are dead, including Saul and his son, Jonathan. And David wants to know, well, how can you be sure that the king and his son are dead? And so the young man who it turns out is an Amalekite, he tells this story of how he had seen Saul in imminent danger And he went to him. And he says, listen, Saul asked me to kill him. And so I obliged. And I've got his crown. And I've got his armlet or his armband. And I've brought them here to you. Who he describes here as my Lord. Indicating that this individual somehow thought, David's going to be pleased with this. He's going to be absolutely delighted with what I've done. And so, David's response, or David's two responses, must have come as a bit of a shock to him. The second one certainly is for most of us, or at least I hope it is for most of us reading this story. If the Amalekite thought, listen, it's going to be celebration time, he was badly mistaken. Because instead of sort of cracking open the champagne and starting to party, David and all his men with him, it says, whenever they heard this report, they rip their clothes apart. They mourn. They weep. They fast for Saul and for Jonathan and for the army of the Lord. Now Saul, you'll remember, has made David's life miserable. He has chased him from pillar to post for years trying to kill him he's even forced him to take refuge with the Philistines but even so David retained respect for Saul and for his position as king and as the Lord's anointed and appointment and so news of Saul's death genuinely broke David's heart these were no crocodile tears this mourning, this weeping, this fasting, these were heartfelt expressions of grief and sorrow. And I have no doubt it took the Amalekite by surprise. It's not what I was expecting. I thought I was doing you a favor. That's why I've brought you his crown and his armband. Do you know, respect for leadership and for those in authority is a strong biblical concept. Romans 13 talks about the need to submit to governing authorities and to those who have been placed in those kind of positions by God. Vic was leading us in prayer for people in authority. Paul, writing to Timothy, says this I urge you, first of all, to pray for all people, ask God to help them, intercede on their behalf, and give thanks to them. Pray this way for kings. And all who are in authority so that we can live in peaceful and quiet lives marked by godliness and dignity. But that can be really hard when those in authority seem to have lost the plot. When those in authority make really strange decisions and poor choices. But the thing is, we we don't need to necessarily agree with everything they say and do. And I recognize there's a real danger here in oversimplifying certain biblical concepts. But how we respond to those in authority and those in leadership is critically important. The Bible seems to teach us to respect those in authority and pray for them. Saul wasn't exactly a great king. And with David, he had made it very personal, and yet David never lost respect. David honored him to the very end, and I reckon even in that, there's a lesson there for us as to how we respond to those in authority. The Amalekite must have been a little shocked at this response, this first response, this ripping, this mourning, this crying, this fasting. But nothing could have prepared him for the second response of David. David asks the Amalekite a question. If you you go down this text, David actually asks the Amalekite five questions. First four, he had an answer. This fifth question He had no answer. And the fifth question was this, why weren't you afraid to lift your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? So if if this is what really happened, if this is true, why weren't you afraid to kill the king? David himself had a number of guilt-edged opportunities to kill Saul. Once in a cave. Another time, While Saul was sleeping, he stood over him and the guy who had come into the camp with David had said, kill him. David chose not to on two occasions. Why? I believe it was ultimately out of a deep respect. The Amalekite has no answer for David for this fifth question. And he's no time to answer because before he knows it, He listens as David orders his execution. And one of David's men step forward and kill him on the spot. And it might seem harsh, and it should kind of like it, for for us as kind of 21st century readers of this text, it does seem harsh, and it should kind of shock us. But you see, killing the Lord's anointed or claiming to have done it and wanting to take credit for it has serious and far-reaching consequences and repercussions as this Amalekite discovered. And I don't want to push this too far, but killing the Lord's anointed has always had far-reaching implications. As humanity discovered 2,000 years ago, has done so ever since, and will do for all eternity. And then comes the song. If there was ever any doubt concerning the sincerity of David's mourning, if anybody ever thought, were these just crocodile tears? This lament removes any doubt. This, This was real. And it would seem that this was often David's way of expressing his emotion. This was often how David dealt with the highs and lows of life. As a gifted musician, which we know he was, he recognized the power of song. And therefore, he often put pen to paper and he wrote lyrics and he set it to music and he used song to reflect his feelings, to reflect his sentiments. And people do it all the time. And what songs do is they can give us a real insight into where someone's at what's important to them, what they really want to say. And like many songs, they are picked up and then they're echoed by others who listen to the song and who sing along because they feel, do you know something, that particular song, those lyrics resonate with me. Those connect. Those reflect how I feel. I can't put into words how I feel, but there's a song that does just that. There's a song that captures Yours, where I'm at, and I'll guarantee you, so many of us connect with that. Never underestimate the power of a song, and in verses 19 to 27, we hear these lyrics again. As I said, I've no idea of the tune, but you you can be sure there was a tune. Because it actually says in verse 17, David took up this lament concerning Saul and his son Jonathan. He ordered that the men of Judah be taught this lament of the bow. So you kind of need to imagine this haunting bow sound as David sings. Let's hear the lyrics. And I'm going to read... Uh, verse 19 from, from another version in the, the NIV, which kind of, I think, loses something the way it starts. A gazelle lies slain on your heights, Israel. How the mighty have fallen. And right from the outset, the, these lyrics reveal a sense of respect and recognition of Saul's stature and his significance. This, this gazelle was a symbol of a human dignitary so right from the word goes, David's getting something out there saying, I respected this man. A gazelle lies slain on your heights, Israel. How the mighty have fallen seems to be like the song's refrain because as you'll hear, it appears three times in the song telling us that, that David thought Saul and Jonathan were mighty men. Verse 20, tell it not in Gath. Proclaim it not in the streets of Ashkelon, lest the daughters of the Philistines be glad, lest the daughters of the uncircumcised rejoice. O mountains of Gilboa, may you have neither dew nor rain, nor fields that yield offerings of grain, for there the shield of the mighty was defiled, the shield of Saul no longer rubbed with oil. From the blood of the slain, from the flesh of the mighty, The bow of Jonathan did not turn back. The sword of Saul did not return unsatisfied. Saul and Jonathan, in life they were loved and gracious. And in death they were not parted. They are swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. O daughters of Israel, weep for Saul, who clothed you in scarlet and finery. Who adorned your garments with ornaments of gold. How the mighty have fallen in battle. Jonathan lay slain on your heights. I grieve for you, Jonathan, my brother. You were very dear to me. Your love for me was wonderful. More wonderful than that of women. How the mighty have fallen. The weapons of war has perished. Those were, I know we can never do them justice, and I know I can't do them justice, but those were very moving lyrics to this lament. Said so much about how David felt about Saul and Jonathan. Now, I do have to say that as with all song lyrics, certain lines or phrases are lifted and taken by some people to mean what they were never intended to mean or lifted out of isolation to kind of make a particular point. And unfortunately, with this song, rather than hear the overall lament, some people have pounced on verse 26 and decided that that confirms that David's relationship with Jonathan was more than just friendship. And therefore, many people use 2 Samuel chapter 1, verse 26, to fuel the current debate and the church's current debate about homosexuality. And I'm not going to say an awful lot about that at the moment, but I honestly believe it's a really unhelpful perspective to grab this particular verse and use it to fuel the debate. As Pete Wilcox has written, it. Verse 26, undeniably validates and offers a model of same-sex friendship in a way that the church needs to recover. But there is no implication here that the relationship between David and Jonathan was a sexual one. So with all song lyrics, and this happens all the time, we've got to be incredibly careful how we hear them and how we use them. David's lament is over. But notice according to verse 17, that the people of Judah were to be taught this song. So this, this is not an individual lament. This is not an individual song that David was just to sing. David actually said, you know something? I want people to learn this song. This is a lament that I want added to people's playlists to remind them how the mighty have fallen. Some of you will have noticed there was no mention of God. God in that lament that surprises some people but it's raw anguish and honest to god emotion and what went along with it are I think a really helpful model of good grief which is desperately needed in our society today according to many social commentators and I was kind of reading a wee bit around this during the week many social commentators would say that we are a society that no longer knows how to respond to death well or even to the bereaved. Do you know here there's no sense of denial, there's no sense of distraction, there's no cliches, there's no platitudes on offer here. The grief is real. The grief is public and it's channeled. Four robust acts close rep. Mourning, weeping, fasting. Question, what are the contemporary equivalents in the 21st century West? What are the contemporary equivalents in the 21st century West? Do you know we increasingly tend to keep grief private? Maybe a little too private keep a lid on our emotions, fight the tears back, suppress our feelings, or at least only express them with a small minority. Is it always healthy? Is it always helpful? It's definitely a million miles from David's reaction to death. The death of a loved one and the process of grief he and others around him showed and expressed. And again, I just want to throw it out to you. There might, just might be something to learn or relearn from this emotional scene and this powerful song about how do we handle grief well. And so another chapter in the story comes to an end. But this is a landmark moment. Now we've reached a major turning point in the story. The king is dead. Means the path is now opened up for a new king to succeed. And we all know who that's going to be. But you know something? It's another four chapters. Until David actually becomes king of all Israel. And in the meantime, there's a number of twists and turns to this story. Which we're going to look at over the next few weeks. So the story continues next week. As we leave here this evening. Let's remember to appreciate and recognize the power of Saul. To realize the danger of lying, if that's what happened. It can cost you your life. To respect and pray for those in leadership and authority. And maybe to learn something from David's example on how we handle and express grief in our culture and society. Let's pray. Father, again, I want to thank you for your word. I thank you for not just the power of song, but the power of story. And I pray, God, that as we have simply reflected and retold a story, that its meaning and what it says to us will actually impact and affect our lives. This week and in the future. God, as we continue to engage with your word, bring it to life. May it be a lamp that guides us. May it be bread that feeds us. May it be a hammer that smashes a rock to pieces in our lives. May it be a knife that kind of opens us up and exposes us and heals us. May it be that sword of the Spirit. God, thank you for your word. In Jesus' name, amen. I'd like us to to finish the very first song that that Vic had chosen for tonight, just as she was reflecting on the faithfulness of God and found it really helpful. The first song was Great is the Lord, and so I kind of wanted us to finish by just declaring that great is the Lord, the splendor of the King, how great is our God. So let's stand together and kind of finish where we started.